Welcome to the Niche Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, our goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices and instead look for the processes and questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Will Patch, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for Higher Ed at Niche. My guest today is John McGrill, Dean of Enrollment Services at Waukesha County Technical College. Prior to coming to WCTC, he served at Bellin College, University of Alabama, and Rockford University. He's also recently been through the presidential cycle with Wisconsin ACAC. Today, I'm going to pick John's brain about two-year admissions and similarities and differences with the public and private four-year roles he's coming from. Welcome, and thanks for making time to chat today. Thanks so much, Will. Well, I, I don't know if you realize this too, but you're our first two-time guest. What? Uh, which, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we... We spoke back in very early April of 2020 because way back then uh, we had just gone everything into lockdown, you know, Yeah. and you had been working remote and you had been managing remote and that was just a question coming up in everybody's mind. So this is, I'm excited. It's the first time you get the full, uh, the full experience the full rather experience. than just a, the, the quick response. Well, and I can never be on this podcast again because my wife only wants to have two kids. And this is the <laughs> second time we're expecting a child within a week or so of uh, recording an episode together, Will. So. Yeah, and I, I didn't realize that until you had mentioned it. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll hold off then and, and see if you change your mind. But <laughs> Some things are fake, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to start off with two questions I ask everyone. First up here, what's something that you tried that didn't work and what did you learn? Yeah, I'll actually go, one, I... There's like 1,700 different answers I could give to this question. But uh, honestly, something recently that happens, we attempted to do a really quickly spun up on-site application completion event and registration event that it didn't really take off. It was going to be a really subtle communication campaign for, for students and just, hey, you've got, you've got these documents sitting out there. Come on in, bring the documents with or bring whatever with you need to. Let's get you admitted. Let's get everything taken care of on site and kind of move you along with your academic advisor and then get you to registration and get everything set up. Yeah. Did not really take off. You know, we didn't have a ton of students who really took us up on it and it fell a little bit flat, to be honest. So I think the lesson that that I was able to really take from that was being reactive. I don't think the concept is bad in and of itself, but what we need to be able to do is ensure that we're promoting this event, that we are spending the time to really get the word out to students instead of being in this reactive footing the entire time. And I think in mm-hmm. higher education, especially in enrollment, right, we end up on our back feet a little bit. Enrollment numbers are down or this yeah. is happening and we have to try and get ahead of it as much as possible. And do you think that was more of a timing or the even sort of your audience that you were speaking to who who didn't really connect with that style? Yeah, I think it was I think it was mostly timing, right? It was mostly timing. We didn't really have a, a robust effort to really kind of push it forward and bring it out. Yeah. And I think in the future, when we look to do something like this, it's going to be more, okay, we're going to start advertising, you know, that four to six weeks out, you know, hey, we're going to have this event. If you want to come on in, no matter what stage you're at, we're going to have people here to help. And if we're not going to get you all the way there, we're going to get you to the next step and give you an action plan leaving. So you're making some of those tweaks then and trying again during the year here? Yeah, exactly. The nature of a, of a two-year school is there's kind of always another start just around the corner. Um, that's one of the big differences, it seems like. That's true at four-year institutions to a degree, but it is explicitly true at a two-year school. Yeah. And the other piece with that is I can actually have students taking classes in the middle of the semester because we're on an eight-week calendar. So students mm-hmm. take their classes almost like a block schedule in high school. They're taking two classes in 
session one, two classes in session two or something like that. So we can get, if a student misses that opportunity for session one, we can get them started in session two and then get them admitted to their program for the next semester. So kind of always mm-hmm. have a new opportunity to try things, which can be both exciting and exhausting at the same time. Yeah. But it definitely gives us a, a good vantage point to try and do what we can in the moment to, to leverage new opportunities. Yeah, I'll bet tracking your funnel looks a little bit different now with uh, a lot more frequency in there. Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a, you're getting a laugh because I'll tell you when I figure it out. So we'll, okay. we'll have, that'll be the follow-up podcast. Yeah. Well, hey, if you're if someone's listening to this and and you're in a similar boat, reach out to John and and Please. have that chat. <laughs> Up next, what practices do you use to brainstorm, and what brings some new ideas into your work? Yeah, so Diet Dr. Pepper Twizzlers and a whiteboard usually. <laughs> um, no, those are my uh, those are my travel food, right? But really, honestly, it's, it usually starts and, and germinates with an opportunity that we see, right? So for instance, we had this, this opportunity to say, do we have the capacity to pull off something like this on-site completion event? Okay, yes, we think we do. Then how do we implement, right? And kind of starting from starting from the beginning, but it's about bringing the key stakeholders together, right? Whether that be your leaders, but also frontline staff, campus partners, whomever is going to be involved, right? It can't just be something coming from the top. It's got to be got to be worked on and workshopped by a few different folks across campus and kind of starting with broad, open-ended questions to say, all right, here's the opportunity we see. How can we take advantage of it? How can we really inject some ingenuity into it and drill down for the nuts and bolts? So as you kind of make it akin to like starting with the forest and then then bring it down to the tree level, right? What does this look like conceptually and then how do we operationalize it? And when you're doing that, are you doing that typically in groups of of stakeholders who are sort of at similar levels. So you have your frontline mission staff, you might have leadership from campus, or is it is it mixed groups? I prefer it to be a mixed group um, whenever possible so that we're getting that information right away, right? Yeah. Instead of having to have one meeting and then go to a next and go to a next and kind of then regroup, right? So we're mm-hmm. getting that conversation from, you know, who's going to be actually operationalizing it versus the overall strategy versus who's the stakeholders that we need to make aware that this is going on. Maybe they're directly involved. Maybe they're going to have a, a ripple effect, right? That's going to impact their day-to-day processes. Now, before we dive right in, very important question here. Which flavor of Twizzlers? Oh, strawberry. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, that and usually some Pringles. I need the salty and sweet, so. Yep, yep. We're on of the same mind here. <laughs> I built an entire CRM and diet Dr. Pepper, Twizzlers, and um, Pringles, so. Nice. <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're talking about these transitions. You know, there's right now we know how there's job openings all over the place. There may be people who aren't thinking about all the opportunities at two-year schools. And there's a lot I think people can learn from the two-year processes and, and sort of these quick turnarounds. Diving into your experiences here, you know, you've had this great path at several different types of institutions. What are some of the surprising ways you're seeing that two years and four years are similar? Yeah, when I, this is a great question, by the way, because I was asked something similar to this on my, on my interview here. And at the end of the day, students still want to be excited. They still want to get educated, right? And it's just what is their path that they're looking for? You know, do they want to go study philosophy? Great. We're not going to be a good fit for that here at a a two-year technical school. But, hey, I want to go into HVAC. Well, that's fantastic, right? It's a one-year program, and you're making some great, um, some pretty significant income afterwards Mm -hmm. doing something along those lines. So they still want to be excited, um, about their about their path, about their education and their future career. 
the mission to educate students is the same. It just takes a slightly different shape to it. What makes me excited about being at a two-year making this transition is higher education should and could be a, a public good. We've kind of created it, it to be in like a commodity oh. in, the, in the words of some folks who are much smarter than me. It's a commodity, and that's true. With a two-year, we get closer to that public good mindset because of the cost point, right? Because that mm. opportunity educates students at a lower cost per credit or whatever it might be. And so the impact on them is, is much different. That's kind of a spot where, where it's a little bit different. But again, the, the whole overarching mission is the same, right? We want to educate people. We want to bring them into the middle class or whatever, whatever euphemism mm-hmm. we want to throw out there. We want to get students to that next level. There's honestly a few other ways, right? The, the actual physical act of working with students isn't all that dissimilar. Maybe the way we operationalize it is different. But at the end of the day, it's still about relationships, and mm-hmm. building strong connections with students. It doesn't matter if you're 18, 81, or somewhere in between. Someone still wants to be heard and still wants to truly be connected with and shown how their educational path and how their success story is going to start at that institution. What are you saying is, is very, very similar process-wise, messaging-wise, uh, because you are working, not always, but typically with a little different population than a four-year public or a four-year private but I'm I'm willing to bet there's a lot of those processes that look very similar. Yeah. Honestly, almost all of the, the process, again, it's just where where do you make that adjustment, right? So on a four-year mm-hmm. side, okay, there's certain admissions criteria. We don't necessarily keep anyone out at a two-year institution. It's more about, okay, what support do you need in order to be successful while you're here? Yeah. So when we're reviewing an application at a two-year institution, we're looking and saying, okay, yep you're going to be able to come on in because we were open access, right? We're bringing everyone in. But what support do you need? Do you need to start off in a skill building course versus diving straight into your program level courses and ensuring that a student has that support system built in and they know what support services exist and taking a look at their transcripts or test scores or whatever it might be that we're utilizing to do that placement and ensuring that we're getting a student to, to the right person in order to have success. We obviously don't want anyone to come in and get put into a class that they're not ready for, right? Yeah. I remember taking some classes in college and being like, man, I should have studied a little bit more in economics in high school to get this figured mm-hmm. out, right? But we want to make sure that we are in a moment where we're helping the student, meeting them where they're at. And that means not just relationally, but academically too, and make mm-hmm. sure they know the support systems that are here. Yeah. So it's much more of a how can we help them thrive rather than what might deny them Correct. that sort of mindset. Yeah. yeah. Was there anything that really surprised you there in terms of, I I really thought this was going to be a a harder transition, but this is so similar. It's a good question. I don't think there was a ton that surprised me about that. This is a really good question. I don't want to minimize it. I was expecting our population makeup to be different than what it turned out to be. And that's more from a a data lens and thinking institutionally about what our class looks like and things like that. I'd heard in the interview process, oh, we work with so many different types of populations and we have a non-traditional population here on campus. Mm -hmm. And when it boils down to it, 55% of our students are in that traditional 18 to 24-year-old range. Mm -hmm. 80% of our students are under the age of 35. That surprised me because it, it was different than what I had also been told. And perhaps the pandemic has impacted that a little bit where we've seen less people in that older age group coming to college. But I also Mm -hmm. think we're just seeing more 
competition, not just from other institutions, but also from industry, right? I did a presentation to the academic deans uh, group here not that long ago, and I shared with them, and I think some of them had already seen this, but I shared with them that literally the quick trip up the road from here is, and that's a, for those of you not from Wisconsin or Midwesterners, <laughs> that is a convenience store attached to a gas station, um, like a Wawa or Casey's, um, or, Casey's yeah. or things like that, right? <laughs> And uh, they're offering third shift, $18 an hour, benefits eligible, 40 hours a mm-hmm. week. So we're not just competing with institutions. We're competing with literal practical jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And that makes the landscape very different. And I think because of that, we're seeing a shift to a younger demographic. Mm-hmm. And our, our desire is going to be to then work with companies, work with community partners to say, let us do our your professional development for you. Mm-hmm. Let's develop um, agreements or use your professional development dollars to send your your staff here and we'll train them up, right? Mm-hmm. And to think about some of those things as, as we're trying to grow and, and enhance enrollment. So that's, I think, the thing that surprised me the most was just what our makeup was and then where our competition truly existed from. Because yeah. it's not just other colleges, that's definitely a piece of it, but we're also competing, like I said, with Quick Trip, with Target, with other employment opportunities versus educational opportunities. And that's very similar to the example I've used. You know how there's just things that stick in your mind when you see them? Yeah. I just remember going by at the height of everybody. You go down the road and every business has a hiring sign. Hiring out. sign, yeah. And there was one for Taco Bell where it was $15 an hour plus health benefits, plus retirement, plus all these things. That's that's not what you think of, or at least right. when I was in high school, that's not what you think of with a fast food job. And I think it comes down to then of, you know, a, a technical education, a, a regular four-year, what, whatever your education is, that's that's more of a long-term investment. But boy, mm-hmm. if I'm 18 and I see that I can get $15 an hour plus benefits, plus all these things, right? that makes it a little harder sell. <laughs> it makes you stop and think, hey, yeah, no, maybe I should work and then go to school. Or And one of the things that, that we're doing is we're developing um, two liberal arts transfer programs and Associates of Arts and Associates mm-hmm. of Science, which I can now talk about because they're HLC approved. So All the right. agency helicopters <laughs> don't have to come in here. Um, but one of the benefits of that program is it's at night. So if a student does decide, hey, I'm going to go work at Target for $18 an hour or whatever they're offering with benefits mm-hmm. and things like that, they're going to have that opportunity to continue their education at the same time as well. Mm-hmm. And so getting some of that message out there and talking with industry about, hey, we can we can fill this need for you. You want to develop your, your staff in addition to offering them some great benefits and opportunities right now great, let's still educate Mm -hmm. them so that they can take that step to be management or district supervisors or whatever it might be so you can continue to develop that pipeline. What are some of the skills and knowledge that really translated well from your past experiences? Yeah, I I mentioned it a little bit ago, but relationship building and storytelling for sure. Mm -hmm. um, That translates, I I don't care what industry you're in, um, relationship building is going to be crucial. The, the storytelling component, I think, is, is also super important when it comes to any educational experience, because you want to be able to show a student why they're coming to this institution, why their success is going to start at that institution. The last component, kind of, kind of from, from my position, is making those data-driven decisions. Yeah. Anything we do, we have to rest in some level of data accountability, whether we're, we're looking at enrollment metrics, whether we're looking at hey, is this event working the way we want it to? We've got to be able to look into data and say, yep, we're having success. 
Now, the key performance indicators are going to be different, right? Because Mm -hmm. a traditional campus visit day with a lot of rah-rah is important. We can build some of that in. But we also have students who just want to come, get the information in 35 minutes, because that's the time they've got before childcare is done, and then get home, right? So we have to really think differently about how we are operationalizing different events and getting students the information they want, right? Some people are going to want that more traditional experience. Others are going to want to be able to come in, quick hit, get the five pieces of information they need, maybe talk with someone from admissions, and then get back to their responsibilities, right? Because we know that students who are making a choice to come back are coming from a very different vantage point than, say, that traditional high school student coming on in. So making those data-driven decisions is a pretty vital skill. And then when it comes from a leadership standpoint, it still, again, goes back to relationship building and and kind of working with your team to to empower them and continue them to kind of build their skill set and and move things through and almost being that that shield blocker for them a little bit and saying, no, 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 this person's got too much on their plate right now. We need them to to focus on this. You know, Mm -hmm. where where else can we we divert this effort to? And and what you said in there but didn't say that I heard anyway was – about being student-centered. If, if you're focusing on what their needs are first and your planning and everything else, no matter where you go, you know that, that focus on what they need first rather than what you want to say and what you want them to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that, that, we, that I've been trying to carry the message on and a few folks here have been trying to carry the message on is our process can be complicated mm-hmm. from the back end. But it's got to be it's got to be like an iPad, right? People get an iPad because it is easy to use. You hit a button, it works the way you expect it to. Underneath, we have no idea how it works, right? As, <laughs> as lay people who know nothing about yeah. it. But on the top, it's very intuitive and easy to use, and that's what we have to do overall with an enrollment. I think this is a mm-hmm. higher ed thing that we have to take this lesson for as well is we have to make things simpler for the student. Even if it means our process can be a little bit more challenging on the back end, how can we make it as simple for the student? And then let's iron out our complexity. Yep, and so often there's process for process's sake, right? Right. I think I made this point the other day with, with someone. I was like, we in higher ed do a disservice to students by bringing this veil of secrecy to enrollment mm-hmm. decisions. Yeah. Right, We've decided that for the sake of prestige or whatever, we're going to put this process behind a locked door and not let anyone in. Um, and frankly, that's a mistake. That's why you have students choosing not to pursue education because they feel like there's a gatekeeper because we've told them there's a gatekeeper, even if there really isn't. You know, yeah. when, when we look at the institutions I've worked at um, and where 95% of students are educated at, they're not the highly rejective schools. Right. Yeah. They're institutions that are, you know, where I just came from at Bellin. I think we rejected one student in my 18 or my 13, 14 months there. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was because their GPA was really low. And we talked with them about transferring in later. Right. So, yeah. you know, even, you know, say the University of Alabama, there were very few that we truly rejected. Right. We had bridge programs and built all of these things to bring students to the table. But we don't talk about that often enough as an industry to say, no, you actually can get into college. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not that difficult. There's just a process you have to follow. And we don't do enough to dispel those myths. Yep. What do professionals coming to a two-year institution need to unlearn? Or what skills do they need to add to their toolkit if they're thinking about making this transition? Yeah, this is another great question. I think the the biggest thing, not actually a skill to unlearn, but just something to keep in mind is 
you are working with, while our population still is heavily under 35, you're working with a much broader range of populations of students, right? You're not just working with that high school student or maybe that that student who maybe took a, a gap year or something along those lines. You're working with students who are potentially working professionals as well who are looking for information as quick as they can because it's mm-hmm. this, this is the thing on their to-do list and they've got two hours to get it figured out. And so you have to be able to give them some information if that's what they want, right? And meeting students where they're at. So you have to think broader about those wide range of populations. It's not up there anymore, but I had a list of about 12 different populations that we currently actively work with on campus. It includes things like our own internal high school completion students, right? Mm-hmm. That's a population we have to focus in on. Guest students who are attending the institution just for a course or two, that's a population we have to think about. Are they guest students because they're transferring to another school? Are they just interested in English? So they want to take an English literate course, right? Um, and maybe if they are, hey, do they actually want to get a credential from us, mm-hmm. right? And kind of paying attention to them. We have a corporate training center that we can be partnering with that goes and does training in the community. But once they do that, those students can also come and take a larger credential and have that opportunity here. And that's honestly just the the tip of the iceberg. And if you're traditional yeah. students, you're transfer students, you're adult learners, you're mm-hmm. reskilling students and and, yeah. and all of the above. So probably returning can, students as well, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, and a lot of returning yeah. students. So you have to think broader about the different populations and know that while every student is different, you're very likely gonna go from one meeting with a squeaky clean high school student in mm-hmm. one breath to working with a guy who's been working tool and die for 15 years and now mm-hmm. has been told he needs to get a credential to keep his job. Understanding and be able to be nimble in that approach is really important. Continuing in, in increasing flexibility. I think the other thing is knowing that you are running anywhere from two to three cycles at one time, which if you think that sounds exhausting, come hang out with me for a day. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and you have five, you know, at least at our institution, we have five entry points, right? We're on eight-week sessions, two sessions a semester, and one session in the summer semester. So we could be starting someone almost every nine weeks with the exception of breaks throughout the calendar year. Mm-hmm. So the the pace, which is always a little bit quicker, just intensifies, right? Yeah. With something along those lines. And trying to plan out a full enrollment cycle and calendar can be difficult when you're managing those those different starts. You know, you might have a conflow that lasts for three, four years for a traditional four-year undergrad. How long does a conflow look like when you have that many start terms? That's a great question. And it's something we're actually working on a little bit. We're designing a new conflow here. And we've had some, we've had a communication plan that's kind of running in the background, but there's been a lot that's been done ad hoc. So we're just trying to formalize a lot of that mm-hmm. and build in more of those relational pieces. Very much a lot of what we've done is transactional. So creating those relational opportunities is, is what we're looking to do at this institution. So I suspect that when we, when we start really building into that convo, we're really be looking for a year to two years and and maybe even having to think of a few different buckets than we normally think of, right? Higher ed and enrollment, especially on the four-year side, you think, all right, drive to apply, app to admit, admit to commit, Mm anti-melt, and then your overarching senior search camp. I suspect that we're going to have to create probably a few more layers to that to include things like a student who's really interested, but we want to keep them kind of warm for a little while because they said, hey, not now, but maybe in a year or so, come back to me. Right. So we're going to have to think about those different populations and how to reach out to them and talk with them. 
So I think, you know, you'd mentioned three to four years. I think that's probably realistic too on a, on a two-year side, right? It's really deciding how long we want to keep someone engaged or do we put the onus back on them to reach back out to us mm-hmm. and, and determining how, how frequently we communicate with those students. That creates a whole different, and then are you segmenting it for all of those nine, 10, 12 <laughs> groups? And, and does each one have a different length? Does each one have, you know, you're going to have these warm nurtures, even if they're kind of on the back burner for a while. Yeah. And that's going to be, like I said, we're undertaking that process here. Mm-hmm. So this is, it's something that we have to think about that. Plus, and we want to do things variably with, you know, with different programs and tailor that communication, right? We know that um, millennials and Gen Z, which is the bulk of our population and probably the bulk of a lot of two-year institution populations, I would think, um, they want personalization. They know that we have this information on them. They may think it's big brothery, but they know we have it. Mm-hmm. So because they know we have it, they're expecting that we will personalize to them. So we truly have to build out these comm plans with with that in mind, knowing that every single student is going to expect that it reads, hey, Will, it's great to see you again. I know we chatted these four times because I have it marked in the CRM. Obviously not that literally, but we want, you know, and the last time we talked, you mentioned you were interested in hosting a podcast. So we have to like, we have to build all of that in um, mm-hmm. And find a way to do that at a mass level, as well as injecting those those personally written communications as well. So I, I literally joked in a meeting the other day, I'm like, we literally have to think inside of a box because our district that we can recruit from is an actual box on a map. Uh-huh. And so we can get a little bit more creative with the limited budget dollars we have because we're not mm-hmm. trying to go grab a list and purchase, you know, 500,000 names, we're working with maybe 15,000, right? So we can get into that, that granular level a little bit, especially if we have a CRM that's truly operating at a high capacity. With students and parents so focused on outcomes right now, like that is, that is such a heavy emphasis. How are you incorporating that into the marketing and recruiting for career and technical education? Yeah, it's constant, right? Mm -hmm. The, The number one question you know, that everyone gets is cost. Probably the number two that we tend to get is, well, what does my career actually look like, right? Yes. If I go into this, what does it actually look like? What's the, what's my return on investment? Even if they're not using ROI specifically, that's kind of yep. what, what they're trying to drive at. And so we're constantly talking about it. One mm-hmm. of the things that, that we also have to do is dispel a lot of myths when it comes to two-year technical education, right? It's viewed as a backup. It's viewed as less than. Yeah, I remember growing up in Addison, Illinois, and um, which is in DuPage County, and we had the mm-hmm. College of DuPage right up the road from us. And in high school, I remember people referring to it as, and I'm sure I probably did at some point too, so sorry, COD, as the College of Dreams or the College of Dropouts. That's a pretty harsh statement to make about an institution mm-hmm. that really can serve a pretty valuable need in, in the community. We have opportunities at two-year and technical schools where you can go and become an HVAC specialist, and that takes you about a year to complete, and then you're making seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year. That's a pretty good-paying middle-class job, yeah. right? Yeah. That's going to set some people up pretty well for the future. The the myths that exist about community college or two-year technical education, career education, really prohibit a lot from being able to push that forward. Right. And one of the reasons why 
I think that is, is we don't have the same bandwidth to market nationally, right? right? Our opportunities, right? To be able to push forward and say, no, there's actually a lot of good value here, right? You can come to this institution, get a great education, make a pretty good income on average, you know, making $60,000 a year pretty quickly, if not starting within a few years of being established in your career and come out with next to no debt or very limited debt, Mm -hmm. right? We spend so much time and energy talking about the student debt crisis. There's actually two things that contribute to that. Number one, we focus a ton on four-year education. And for some people, that is the exact right path. For myself, Mm -hmm. it was. For other people, it might not be. And the other thing is, we have a funding crisis, mm-hmm. not necessarily a debt crisis. We have pulled money from higher education in every way, shape, or form. Statewide, nationally, we've pulled it away. So we have a funding crisis that has precipitated this debt crisis. So if you have an opportunity to start at a two-year institution, whether your plan is to go to a four-year or not, you're going to save that money. You're going to reduce your burden, especially if you're undecided and not sure what you want to say. You're going to have that opportunity to transfer into a four-year school. If we can continue to spell this about the quality of education that students can receive at a two-year career and technical institution, that's going to help that process overall. And there are a whole host of careers that our society desperately needs that you only need that technical diploma or that associate's degree in order to do. And so if we can invest and keep tuition at a reasonable point and work to work with our community partners. There's a school district out here that does a fantastic job of this. They t- it's Oconomowoc High School. There's another fun Wisconsin town name to learn how to say. Um, at Oconomowoc, they promote the five paths with equal weight. Workforce, two-year education, four-year education, military, and apprenticeships. They do celebrations for all five of those. So no matter what path a student is walking, they're getting that experience of that hype and that excitement at Oconomowoc. We need that mentality to replicate across the country. How does parent involvement differ? You know, this this may be another misconception as well that I assume for younger students, but maybe parents are very involved for that 30-year-old, 35-year-old as well too. I think for your traditional age, it's it's going to be really similar, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, that 18 to 24-year-old, that parent's going to be pretty involved thinking and asking questions on the behalf of the student to say, you know, okay, what's the what's the cost going to be? How do we pay for this? What's the mm-hmm. process for X, Y, or Z? Will my child be safe on campus? You know, all that. Right, will they be yep. safe? Yep. Um, you know, are there clubs and organizations for an opportunity for them, right? What mm-hmm. what does all of that look like? Those questions are always going to be the same. Where I would actually frame this a little bit different is the influencer group. Any student is coming to us, no matter what age they are, with an influencer of some kind. Yeah. It may be a spouse, it may be a sibling. It might be a family friend because they didn't get that support from their parent or guardian, right? Actually, we just mm-hmm. did a just a really cool event where our president brought yard signs and WCTC mm-hmm. gear to their house, and it's going to be rolled out on social media in about a week or so at the start of classes. One of the students told me that like, he didn't receive as much support from his mom as he would have liked. So he ended up moving out in with a family friend because they were being supportive. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I'm sure there's a whole host of other things underneath there. That's what he shared, right? Yeah. So thinking about how, what that influencer group looks like is also important. We probably don't want to be communicating with that mom anymore, but that influencer, we want to know, right? And we yeah. want to be able to get connected with them. And continuing to communicate with those um, stakeholders is is important because they are going to be the ones who are really kind of keeping that student on, on track. And also they're going to be the ones that student goes to when they're struggling in that class. 
Mm-hmm. So how powerful would it be, especially when we're talking about first generation and underrepresented populations and or historically marginalized populations? It's going to be really powerful for that student to go to their support structure mm-hmm. um, and say, hey, I'm struggling with macroeconomics. Well, you know, there's a tutoring center there at that institution, or you know, there's the support there at that institution. If they can be that resource, it's going to help retain and persist that student. So we have to work to bring them along. It's more difficult because it's it's harder to to get at that information from yeah. a student, right? And they're going to volunteer it much differently. It's easy to say, hey, give us your parent contact information, right? That's yeah. pretty simple or guardian information. Yeah. Um, but to get at, you know, tell us about your spouse. It's a little weird, right? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> it's a little yeah, bit weird, cool. uh, but eventually we're going to find them throughout the process. And if we can be relational, develop those relationships, they're going to trust us as well to say, oh, yeah, you know who's really supporting me in this is is my significant other. Okay, well, let's let's have that conversation. If they have questions, let them know they can reach out to me too. I'm more than happy to answer them mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. And having that, that concrete conversation so the student knows that you're there for them, right? It's continuing yeah. that student-centered mindset that we talked about earlier all the way through. Right. And and thinking not only just about the recruitment process, but also retention. And I would almost even frame it as who else is celebrating with you? Who else is going Mm -hmm. through this journey with you? And then having those calm flows for that and having those touch points for that. Yeah, because that celebration is so important. I think we do have to to build in those moments. First semester done. Right. We're we're moving along. This is great. Right. And and take those moments just to say, hey, congrats. Like you've made it this far. Let's keep going. What support do you need? How can we help? Right, and continuing to have that intentional and perhaps annoyingly so, but really persistent um, communication with students that they know that we are on their team, right? And we're going to celebrate their victories with them. I like that. I'm always an advocate for these influence the influencers campaigns, whether that's counselors, CBOs, you know, who else can help advocate for students in the future and know what you have about your resources, program offerings, all that. This is a different take on it. I, I like mm-hmm. that of who else is working with the student right now and how do we make sure they can help advocate and they can help support while right. that student's enrolled even. Yeah, even if it's more passive, right? Like um, mm-hmm. we have a team of what's called navigators here and they're they're focused on retention, right? How do we mm-hmm. how do you navigate this process? And that's something that as, as we're having these conversations that I'm, I'm bringing up a fair amount, right? How do we continue to engage the support because also if that person is sitting there thinking man they're really supported here at wctc that influencer may decide okay maybe i need to take a course or maybe i can upskill or just understanding the resources available so they can support their student the best right and it's another way to overcome a roadblock for a student if their network if their support system knows there's counseling services there is accessibility for students who maybe have a disability Right? There's mm-hmm. all of these different services available to students to be able to continue through, even if something comes up in the short term, even if there's some sort of life event that takes place. That's one of the reasons why um, two-year institutions are shifting towards this eight-week calendar or eight-week calendar a little bit. Then, if at week nine in a in a semester your car breaks down and you can't get to class for a week or whatever, yeah, well, you're only impacting two classes as opposed to four or five, right? Mm-hmm. And we're able to keep you on track a little bit better. And, and I would think it helps you focus, too. You're taking two classes mm-hmm. at a time instead of five. Correct. It's that whole, yeah. like I said, it's that concept of block scheduling, right? If mm-hmm. you focus on one or two classes, you're going to do a little bit better. And we're, we're going to have probably some that, or I think schools have some that do do the whole 16 weeks just because of the content, right? Think like your anatomy and mm-hmm. physiology, which thank God I never had to take. Um, but 
Um, so happy being a history major. Um, but <laughs> but if we're impacting less when those life things happen, again, especially when we're talking about different ages and different populations, that's going to come up pretty frequently, no matter who you are. You're going to have a time where your car breaks down and you don't have the money necessarily to fix it, right? Or yep. something in life is going to potentially derail you. So if we can minimize that impact as much as possible, um, that's, what we, that's what we need to be doing. Any final thoughts for people who are thinking about making this transition or maybe just don't realize just how many community colleges are out there and all the great opportunities they have there to serve students? I would say this one, don't be afraid to make the jump. It's an opportunity. It's a, an ability to grow your skill set, develop your tools further. We should all be in the habit of sharpening those tools whenever we can. But the other thing is there are 1,100 plus community colleges across the country and they educate about 4.5 million students. That's about 40% of students who are being educated in this nation. It's a pretty high portion of our industry. So there's definitely an opportunity to think about that. And one of the things that I really kind of thought about when I was thinking about taking this role, thinking about applying for this role, was saying, what's my personal mission? Like, what is my hope? What do I want Mm -hmm. to try and advance? And does this institution align with where I'm at? And again, I think I mentioned at the top, I'm very much someone who believes that higher education can and should be a public good as much as we can make it that way. Mm-hmm. And two-year institutions allow us to kind of fulfill that mission a little bit more. And mm-hmm. so think about the mission that, that you want, that you personally have for your career, and see if that institution is going to line up with it. You can have a great impact at a two-year institution because of the nature of it, because of the opportunity that it's going to be to, to lift students up and really educate the community that you're working in. Mm-hmm. Well, John, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, and, and I'm glad we got to talk again just before baby number two, two came along. I, I, that has to be an amazing coincidence that both times there. but <laughs> Just something with it. You've got a, yep. a, a sixth sense, I guess. I must. <laughs> no, thanks so much, Will. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yep. Have a, have a great time and hope everything goes smoothly. Thanks. You too.